0: Well, good morning church. My name's, that was really weak. It's March! We made it. Good morning. My name's John. serve as one of the pastors here on staff. It's a joy to be with you this morning. If you're a guest, welcome to Glen Allen Bible Church. We are glad that you're here this morning. Would love for you to feel welcomed here at Glen Allen Bible and that you belong here at Glen Allen Bible. We realize that Our mission of helping people follow Jesus starts with a welcome. You have to feel welcomed uh, to to begin that journey or to be strengthened in that journey. And so if you go to Glen Allen Bible Church, you see somebody here that you don't recognize, let's be a welcoming church. There's a couple official ways that you can feel welcomed. You can head to the, if you are a guest, you can head to the Welcome Center, go to the welcome booth. There'll be somebody there that can answer your questions help you learn more about the church. You can also head to the gym, which will be really active uh, this Sunday. We've got a big project going on in there. So head to the gym, grab a donut, spend some time chatting with people. Or if you feel like it, you could come forward after service. And I would love to shake your hand and officially welcome you to Glen Allen Bible Church. Would you turn with me to Acts chapter 18 this morning? We are nearing the finish line of our series called Together for the Gospel. We've been following along our dear brother Paul. We started in Acts chapter 13, and we've been following Paul as he has gone out from Jerusalem and ultimately out from the church in Antioch. He's head into uh, foreign lands and is sharing the gospel. And we've been following him along as he's gone to these different towns and cities and places. And he's had all sorts of different kinds of experiences. Acts 18 verse 1 says, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. So Paul made his way to Athens all by himself you remember, I'm not going to recap all of it in detail, but there was, of course, some resistance and a little bit of drama for Paul. He was uh, sent out of the city and head to, headed to Athens on his own. When he got to Athens, uh, he spent some time with the thought leaders of the day and didn't spend a whole lot of time in Athens, but he left there, uh, Acts 18 tells us, and he headed for Corinth. This is Paul's second missionary journey. We have a map up on the screen. Corinth is the farthest city to the, your left uh, on the screen. You can see it's just a short journey, 56 miles from Athens to Corinth. Paul made that trip by himself, probably took him a few days, and he arrives in the city of Corinth. There's a couple pictures of modern-day Corinth. It is now uh, full of archaeological ruins but back in 50 A.D., Corinth was a huge city. Historians tell us, archaeologists and anthropologists tell us that the city was um, up to five miles wide. So people that lived five miles from each other were, were Corinthians. Back in that uh, day, Corinth had uh, a booming trade industry. It was a rich city, an influential city. It was actually the capital city of that city. Uh, region. It's on a narrow isthmus. That's a really tricky word to say on the platform, so I'll say it one time. It's a narrow strip of land. Uh, today, if you were to go there, there's a, a massive canal that cuts through that strip of land so that ships don't have to make the 250 mile journey around the peninsula. They can shortcut it through the, the canal. But in 50 AD, around 50 AD, when Paul showed up in Corinth, Corinth was a rich and wealthy city because of trade, but also because of the pagan uh, idolatry and worship that happened in Corinth. The Bible doesn't tell us a whole lot about what was happening in Corinth. But there is a ton of detailed archaeology and anthropology. There's actually writings from philosophers, both Roman and Greek, that have to do with that area, specifically with the city of Corinth. Archaeologists have unearthed several temples in the city of Corinth. Greek temples and Egyptian temples, temples to Egyptian gods and Greek gods and Roman gods. There's all sorts of temples that existed in Corinth throughout its history. The picture that you see up on the screen is the temple, a rendition. This isn't the original. I didn't have cameras back then. I don't know if you guys knew that. Um, <laughs> this is the, the temple, a rendition of the temple to Aphrodite, the goddess Aphrodite. That's a, a term or a, a goddess that you've probably heard of before. Aphrodite was the goddess of fertility and sexuality, the goddess of love. And during Paul's time in Corinth and throughout its history, this temple was full of both male and female prostitutes who would collect monies to benefit the temple and to make the goddess rich. There's a, a phrase that's found in multiple historical texts from this period that say uh, A journey to Corinth was not for every man, meaning that the sexual experience was intense in a place like Corinth. There's multiple stories of men who would travel to Corinth, mostly sailors who would travel to Corinth and lose all of their money returning home back to other parts of Greece and the Mediterranean world, completely broke because of the money that they spent in Corinth. Corinth was known as uh, Sin City, There was all sorts of sin happening in Corinth. In fact, archaeologists have found 13 wine shops in the city as well. So not only pagan worship, but uh, a crazy number of wine shops um, as well. This was a a modern day uh, Amsterdam, Las Vegas. Think of the, the sin cities of our day. That is what Corinth was. I tell you this information for a couple of reasons. First is this is the backdrop. This is the content, context. This is where Paul is heading. He's stepping into sin city and he's all alone. He's stepping into Corinth. Corinth is this difficult place. It's a sinful place. Place There's temples to all different kinds of gods. And everywhere you turn, when you look, you see this massive temple up on the mountain to Aphrodite. It also gives you, the second reason I tell you, it also gives you some context for the letters that Paul wrote back to the church in Corinth. So Paul eventually leaves Corinth. But his influence doesn't stop. He writes letters back to 1st and 2nd Corinthians. He writes these letters back to the church. And if you know anything about those letters, they're full of instruction for the church. And a lot of the instruction that Paul gives in those letters to the church in Corinth have to do with sexuality. Which makes some sense because of the place that they live and the, the sin that surrounds them. Let's continue on in Acts 18 We're going to pick up in verse 2 and go through 17. There he met a Jew. I want you to stop for just a second. That word met is actually poorly translated in the NIV. This actually happens from time to time. People do their best. But a better word for met is actually found. If you have an ESV, I think NASB and some of the other translations, they translate that word to found. And that is a better word Word for what's happening there. And it, the distinction matters because meeting somebody is like, oh, hey, how are you doing? But finding somebody means you're looking for somebody. You're looking for somebody. So Paul found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them. And because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogues, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justice, a worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord. And many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you. And no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. While Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews of Corinth made a united attack on Paul and brought him to the place of judgment. This man, they charged, is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Just as Paul was about to speak, Gallio said to one of them, If you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names and your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of su- such things. So he drove them off. Then the crowd there turned on Sothenes, the synagogue leader, and beat him in front of the proconsul. On Gallio, showed no concern, whatever. All right, church, there's a lot going on in this little section, isn't there? A lot of interesting things happening, a lot of interesting history, a lot of interesting people enter into the story. We could spend some, some time talking about Aquila and Priscilla, this power couple that emerges in Corinth. They were Jews sent away from Italy, and Paul finds them. He's looking for Jewish companionship, and he finds them. Likely, Paul is the the one who shares Jesus with them. Priscilla and Aquila go on to Ephesus, where they become leaders in the church in Ephesus. It's this beautiful story of this couple who, who gives everything they have for the church We could talk again about the resistance that Paul faces in Corinth. We've seen this pattern, right? Paul, wherever he goes, he starts telling Jews about Jesus, about the fact that he is the Messiah. And then there's resistance. Resistance from some of the Jewish people. Paul says, does this interesting thing, right? Where he shakes the dust from his clothes and turns his focus of his ministry to the Gentiles that shaking the dust was actually something that was a part of Jewish culture and Jewish custom. If you were a Jew and you traveled to Gentile lands, when you left there, you would shake the Gentile dust off of you before you entered into your home or back into um, where Jewish people would be. It was a a symbol of purity in some senses. And Paul flips it here. You see that? Paul shakes the dust and says, you're on your own. You're on your own. I have been faithful. I think it's interesting and somewhat funny, actually. Only God would do this, right? He'd he'd kick Paul out of the synagogue and then set up his mission base right next door, right? He sets up his mission base for a year and a half in Corinth right next door. We could talk about the Holy Spirit moving in, and we could look closely at the people that are coming to faith in Jesus, We see Crispus come to faith in Jesus. We hear about Sothenes. These were synagogue leaders Paul writes about later in Corinthians that he actually baptized Crispus. And Sothenes appears later as one of his travel companions, one of his missionaries who's working with him. We could talk about Timothy and Silas returning in the the boost that that would have given Paul, the the doing ministry together with your friends, this kind of reuniting that's happening. Each one of these things could be a sermon in and of themselves, but this morning what I'd like us to focus on, what I'd really like us to focus on, I feel like God has laid this on my heart, and I think it is a word for us this morning, is this topic and this idea of fear. Because the truth is at this moment, At this point in his journey, Paul is afraid. Paul is afraid. In fact, I would say, I would make the argument that Paul is low. Paul is low. Paul is lonely. Paul is afraid. And you may say, okay, well, how do we know that? Tell me more about what's going on with Paul. Well, the first thing I would offer is that Paul's behavior has changed. And typically when Paul enters a city, if there's a synagogue there, he goes to it immediately. He looks for Jewish companionship. He goes there with excitement to tell them about Jesus. Well, he hasn't abandoned that completely. It does say he goes to the synagogue and reasons with the Jews and Greeks. But we see this unique thing happen where Paul finds Priscilla and Aquila and he begins making tents. He hasn't done that before. What's going on with Paul? Why is he going back to his occupation? Well, there's a couple of reasons. One is I believe that, that Paul was, was low. Paul was hurting. Paul was lonely. He found these companions and he started making tents with them. It, it encouraged him and he was able to encourage them. But the second thing I would say is that Paul is making tents because he needs money. He's likely broke at this point in his journey. And we know this because in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 9, he says that when Silas and Timothy returned, they brought me a gift that enabled me to continue preaching. That means that they brought him money so that he could stop making tents and start preaching fully again. So combined with this feeling of loneliness and entering a city where he was in Sin City all by himself and leaving Athens where he had some success but not a ton of success. He never mentions Athens again. He never goes back to Athens again. On top of that, feeling low and lonely, he's broke. He's broke. So his behavior has changed. The second thing I would offer is that Jesus directly addresses Paul's fear. Well, some of you may say, well, how do we know that this is Jesus here? How do we know that this is Jesus that met Paul here in verse 9? First thing I would say is that that phrase, the Lord, Paul says, or Luke, is who is writing this, says, the Lord came to Paul. That phrase, the Lord, is used over and over throughout the book of Acts and throughout the New Testament, both by Luke and by Paul, to describe Jesus, the Lord. It's a person, the Lord Jesus. If you look just a verse before that, the, Luke writes, the, writes God. He writes the word God. And so we know that this is not God or Yahweh that's coming to Paul, but this is Jesus. There's two different Greek words that are used there. Theos for God and Karios for Jesus. And so I would make the argument that not just because it's red in your Bible, the words are red, the color red, in your Bible, but this is actually Jesus, the Lord, coming in to Paul in a vision and speaking to him. And the first thing he says to Paul is, do not be afraid. So I would say that Jesus isn't wrong. I'm going to go with Jesus on this one and say that Paul's afraid, (laughs) that Jesus knows that Paul's afraid. The third thing I would offer for knowing that Paul's afraid and knowing that he's low and knowing that he's not in a great place is that Paul himself says that he is in a bad spot. If we look at 1 Corinthians 2 verses 3 and 4, this is where Paul is writing back to the Corinthian church and he's talking about what he was like when he entered Corinth and began to do ministry. It says, I came to you in weakness. With great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. This is Paul explaining to the Corinthians why he was like he was. And he's telling us as we read these words I was afraid. I, not only was I afraid, I was trembling with fear, and I was weak. Even my words were not strong and pervasive. I relied on the Holy Spirit in ways that I had never have. That's what Paul is saying. So Paul is low. Paul is, is weak. Paul is lonely. Paul is depressed. Paul misses his friends. Paul is broke. Paul is not in a good place. He's lonely, tired, homesick, trembling with fear. Paul was afraid. It's pretty common. It's pretty common to be afraid. It's pretty common to be afraid, to have fear. Fear is that feeling of dread, this feeling of dread that that comes to us because something we think is going to happen. It's this, like a perceived threat, a feeling of dread. And we have fear and anxiety and worry. They kind of make this triangle of dread, right? They're all kind of the, the same feeling or a different word for how we are afraid. This feeling of dread. Now, it's true, fear can be good, right? Like there's certain things we need to be afraid of. I have five teenagers. I thank God for fear. <laughs> there are things we should be afraid of, like getting speeding tickets, right? We, should be, we shouldn't want that in our lives, or jumping off high things. These are things that keep us alive, that's not the kind of fear I'm talking about. The kind of fear I'm talking about is this, this fear that overcomes us, this crippling fear that keeps us up at night, this type of fear that's so heavy that we can't even eat sometimes. And sometimes it's irrational fear. It's fear about things that don't even really matter. They aren't a, a threat to us to our physical bodies or to our lives, but we, we obsess on them and we become overwhelmed by them and we're crippled by them. We can't even function in life. It's like we are carrying this burden around with us everywhere we go. And it weighs us down. I mean, It's so heavy that it even causes us, if we wanted to, physically move, we've got, to, we've got to change our posture so that we can make it. Many of us are carrying a, a burden of fear and worry and anxiety that's, that's starting to crush us. And if I look in my bag here, my, my bag, my burden of fear, there's future. How many of us are afraid of the future? How many young people in here are wrestling about, where do I go to school? Where do I, what job do I take? Do I continue in the job I'm in? Am I going to make it? Am I going to have enough time and money? And we, we worry and obsess. and We get crushed by the burden of thinking about the future. How about, how about family? We carry around fears and worry and anxiety about our family. Are my kids going to make it and be all that I hoped they would be? What about my aging parents? How am I going to care for them? My, my one kid, he... He doesn't really know Christ and it's overwhelming. I, I'm so anxious about it. I, I can't let it go. It's, it's a crushing burden. How about actual safety? How, how many of us are up at night because we're afraid that something horrible is going to happen? I'm not saying that we shouldn't make good decisions and wear seatbelts and all sorts of things like that. I'm talking about the irrational fear that no matter where I go or whatever I do or wherever I, it's going to be unsafe. Something horrible is going to happen. For parents, a lot of times we project this onto our kids, don't we? We want to just build a bubble around them so that everything is always safe. How about image? We live in a community full of a lot of beautiful people. We worry a lot about what everybody thinks of us. We care so much. We get worried and anxious about what people think, of how we look and how our house looks. And we... Sweep things back behind and under the rug so that no one will see what we're really like. It's a crushing burden for many. It's fear and worry and anxiety. Oh, this is a major one. How about money? How about money? How many of us have laid our head on our pillow at night and can't fall asleep because of this issue? And it's not any less because some of us have a lot of it. Sometimes that's a crushing burden in and of itself. How am I gonna pay for college? How am I gonna pay all my bills? What am I gonna set aside and what am I gonna give? Worry and anxiety and fear about money. A burden that can crush us. How about rejection? Fear that we're going to be rejected by friends or boyfriend or girlfriend or spouse, or maybe this is fear of rejection about sharing Christ. We're never going to go out on a limb because we're going to get rejected. This can be an overwhelming fear, a crushing burden. I don't know what's in your backpack, but I know that every person in here carries one. And here's the thing, church. This this burden of fear is actually the enemy of faith. Fear is the enemy of faith. Because with faith, we're free. We know that there's some some body that's able to, to carry the things that are crushing us. We have faith that things are going to be okay, that things are going to work out. And even if they don't, We know there's a reason behind it and we know that God loves us and cares for us and fear that overwhelming sense of fear, the anxiety and the worry that crushes us is the enemy of that thriving faith. Fear is the enemy of faith. All right, so let's get back to Paul. What does Jesus do for Paul in his fear? One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you. No one is going to attack you or harm you because I have many people in this city. The first thing that Jesus does for Paul is that he comes to Paul. He comes to Paul and he speaks to Paul he comes to Paul and he, he addresses the very thing that was overwhelming, that was threatening to Paul, this, this fear. He comes close to him and he says, Don't worry, don't be afraid. He comes near to him. The second thing that Jesus does is, is he gives Paul a command. I love this. Don't stop speaking, don't be silent. Don't don't stop the mission that I had for you. Don't stop moving in faith, Paul. He gives him a command. Don't stop speaking. Don't be silent. He gives him marching orders. Continue on. The third thing Jesus does for Paul is he shares with him real truth that will motivate him. He shares with him real truth, specific truth. Says no one is going to attack you because I have many people in this city. I've got many people in this city. What's interesting is the this truth. This Paul, Paul has this, this vision, and Christ comes to him in this vision, and he tells him, You're not going to be attacked. I've got many people in the city. And then the next few verses, what happens? He's attacked. <laughs> Paul's attacked. And he's brought in front of the Galileo. He's brought in front of the proconsul, the mayor of that region. And the, the people that bring him there, the Jews are hoping, oh, hopefully he'll get thrown in jail or maybe they'll kick him out of here or maybe we'll really get what we want and they'll kill him. And the mob brings him forward and just as he's about to speak on his behalf and defend himself... Who steps up? Galileo. Galileo steps up and he defends Paul. And I don't know if Galileo becomes a, a Christ follower later in life. We don't know much about him from the Bible. He never shows up again. But we do know that he intercedes in this moment on behalf of the mission of God. And if I'm Paul, I'm standing there going, you told me I got many people in this city. Galileo steps up and defends him. So what does the Bible tell us about fear? Most of us are not going to have a vision where Jesus comes to us in a vision and speaks to us and tells us don't worry about the specific thing that we are afraid of. Maybe some of us will praise God. But most of us are not going to have that type of a vision. So where do we learn about fear? Where do we, where do we get encouragement? How does Christ come close to us? Well, we have the, the Holy Spirit. Christ can move in us through our Holy Spirit and help us feel comforted, but he has given us his word. In God's word, did you know that in God's word, the phrase, do not be afraid or do not fear, do not be afraid or do not fear, appears appears 365 times. 365. I'm not a numerologist guy, but man, that seems really interesting. Maybe every day we need to be reminded to not be afraid. So God's word speaks to us about our fear. Let me share a few verses with you this morning. The Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man, what can man do to me? So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. But the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen you and protect you from the evil one. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. And what's the next part? And I will give you rest. Maybe you're carrying around this massive burden. It's weighing you down. The fears and anxiety and worry of this world are starting to crush. Today, I want to invite you I want to invite you to cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Cast all your fear, your anxiety, your worry onto him. It's not like we have to figure out how to manage this, we actually get to put it on someone else. His name is Jesus. He wants to carry this burden. And I want to invite you this morning to give that crushing burden of fear and anxiety to Jesus. Let me pray for us. Father God, we love you. We thank you for Paul and his real life struggle. Sometimes I think of Paul as a superhero. Paul's a real man that faced real struggle, and we thank you that you came to him, Jesus. We thank you that you, you came to him and encouraged him. We thank you for your word that encourages us today. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.